for reading that. We're going to go all the way down through verse 50, the end of the chapter this morning. So let's turn to the Lord one more time, ask him for prayer, and then we'll study this passage together. God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. It's a gift, and we ask now as we come around your word that you would give us faith to receive your word and to live by it uh, as we go into our week. Uh, We pray that you would use your spirit to convict us and to illuminate our hearts so that we can see the truth and not just know about it, but believe it and live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning in Mark, we are seeing Jesus predict his death for the second time. He mentioned it in chapter 8, and now in chapter 9 he mentions it, and then again in chapter 10. So if you're studying the book of Mark, you can remember those three predictions in those three chapters, 8, 9, and 10. After each prediction of his death, Jesus goes on to teach his disciples what it looks like to follow him. And in each of those teachings, there is the theme of humility. So in chapter 8, after he predicted that he would go to the cross, he made this statement. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there was that self-denial, that willingness to put yourself aside. There's no room for pride in following Jesus. In chapter 10, which we'll study in a few weeks, he predicts his upcoming death, and then in his teaching following that, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So here's just what I want you to see. Each time that Jesus presents himself going to the cross, He follows up with a word of instruction to his disciples saying, now be humble, live as a servant. And we're going to see the relationship as to why that takes place. Now, we're moving into verses 30 and following in chapter 9. And we're asking the question at the beginning in verses 30 through verse 32, who is Jesus? Now, the second point or the second question are what are the characteristics of those who follow Jesus? But looking at verses 30 to 32, Jesus presents himself in ways that confuse the disciples. As you read the Bible, you look back and you say, okay, I I understand that. But you have to remember that the disciples are walking with him and in many cases hearing this information for only the second time. It doesn't fit the categories yet that they have in their mind. So let's study through this, and let's keep in mind how the disciples are hearing it, and then let's keep in mind what we know to be true about Jesus as we read the whole Bible. So four phrases that characterize Jesus in verses 30 to 32. The first phrase is simply the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, what is this title, Son of Man? We've seen it several times. It's taken from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, there is a vision that the prophet has of someone coming to the Father, someone coming to God the Father here. And he says here in verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, and here's the title, Son of Man. 
Now, I want you to notice what happens with the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days. That's another name describing the eternality, the eternal nature of God. And what happens when he comes to God here? Well, he was presented before him, and this Son of Man to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now, you have to know that this passage was very well known to the Jewish mind. Why is that? Because it told of a coming kingdom. And this kingdom is characterized in several ways. Number one, it's characterized that God would give the kingdom. So this is going to be an act of God. A kingdom is coming to the Jewish people that God would give. Secondly, you begin to see the scope of this kingdom. This kingdom would be made up of all peoples, nations, and languages. So you think about kingdoms that are often centralized, that have borders that go around them. There's the edge of that kingdom. To the Jewish mind, here's a kingdom that is coming, and it will be global in nature, no boundaries to it. And not only does it not have physical boundaries to it, but it doesn't have chronological boundaries to it either. Daniel said, that it is an everlasting kingdom. It's one that is not going to pass away and it is not going to be destroyed. So here's this kingdom given by God without borders and it goes on forever. Who's it given to? It's given to this individual who is called the son of man. And the Jews are saying, okay, there's somebody who is coming who is the son of man. And throughout the gospel of Mark, you see Jesus applying what title to himself? Son of man, son of man, son of man. So Jesus is using that title, which tees off this thought in the mind of the Jews about a king and a kingdom. And now we're going to see something that totally blows the mind of these Jews. Second characteristic is this. This son of man is going to be delivered and killed. Let's talk about that word delivered for just a moment. You might remember in the book of Romans chapter 1, there are three paragraphs where the Bible says that God delivered or gave them up. And it's giving them up because these individuals wanted to run in the lane of sin. And God says, if you want to run in the lane of sin, I'm going to deliver you up to that lane and let you run. I'm going to let you go. This term deliverance often has the idea of judgment or consequence. Because you want to run that way, here, I'm going to deliver you up for judgment in that way. And many of you who have read Romans 1, you remember God gave them up to the lust. God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up to this and this. And so that's the idea here with this term that God is the one who is saying, okay, I am serving you up. As you read through the book of Romans, that same word delivered up comes up in chapter 4, where the apostle Paul says, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered or given up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Jesus, the son of man, is being delivered. Romans 8 verse 32, here's how it's said again. He who did not spare his own son, speaking of the father, 
but gave him up for us all. Same word, delivered. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's the son of man, Jesus, talking about himself, the idea of a kingdom, and we've seen that language in the Gospel of Mark, so it's kind of like these different ingredients coming together in this recipe, and the disciples are saying, these ingredients don't seem to fit together. Because we're saying that God is going to take this son of man and he is going to serve him up, deliver him up. Who's responsible for Jesus going to the cross? Well, here Jesus is saying he's going to be delivered up. The father is responsible for Jesus going to the cross. Now, here's the third characteristic that if they weren't confused now, totally blows their minds. The son of man delivered up what is going to take place. It says here in verse 31, he will be killed. On a human level, Jesus was put to death because of rejection. On a divine level, we see that Jesus was put to death for the forgiveness of sins. Here's the Son of Man being delivered up, killed by the hands of men. All according to the plan of God, Isaiah 53, verse 6, speaks of this, where he says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is going to be killed. He's going to be killed because of our sins. Our sins are going to be placed on Jesus, and the innocent lamb, the innocent Savior, is going to offer his life as a gift to sinners so that we can stand before God and have this gift in front of us saying, God, it's not my righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. And all along, it was God's plan to deliver Jesus up like a sacrifice for us. Not for his sin, but for our sin. So, as we're moving through this, you have to keep in mind the disciples hearing, son of man, and going, yes, I'm for that. Delivered up, that sounds strange. Killed, no, that doesn't fit the language that I'm used to in Daniel chapter 7 because this is an eternal kingdom, no geographical scope. Kings don't die, they reign victoriously. But then there's one more characteristic that Jesus mentions here at the end of verse 32. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And the disciples clearly have no idea what he means by this, and neither would we if we were in their shoes. The only idea that we would have is that there is a future resurrection for all believers. That's the only resurrection that we know about. When Jesus starts talking about his body being raised, him being raised three days later, you see over and over again throughout the Gospels, there's confusion about it. We don't get it. And so here's this new category, but it points to the fact that Jesus will defeat not only the physical enemies, but the spiritual ones. And so Jesus' power is going to conquer all things. Jesus conquers death. He conquers death for his people. And you read about that throughout the rest of scripture where he came and conquered that last enemy, death, so that we don't have to fear it. So believers, we know even from our just physical existence as we look around the world, there are people who die every day. You've been close to some of them. 
And what Jesus does for us, the king, the son of man, delivered up, killed by the hands of men, risen on the third day, can stand back at his people and say, anybody who comes to me and anybody who follows me, I want you to know you get to share in the victory over death that I've provided for you. Does anybody want to die? No, God has not designed us to want to die. But when we face death and we see it, we don't have to look at it as that enemy that will conquer us. Instead, we hold on to Jesus, our great king, this great king over this kingdom who has risen on the third day and conquered death and say, I get to share in the spoils of his victory who conquers death. So as you have seen loved ones pass away, as you look at your own ailments, death is not the end for believers because Christ is risen. That's the victory that we share in. So this is who Jesus is. He's the son of man in all of his greatness. He's delivered up by the father. He is the sacrifice for our sins and he's also the victor over death as the resurrected savior. This is who Jesus is in verses 30 to 32. But notice what happens to the disciples reaction in verse 32. They did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. And it makes me wonder, why are they afraid to ask? I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Here's Jesus teaching. Is it because sometimes they just are totally lost in their confusion and their pride keeps them from asking questions because they don't want to feel like a fool because Jesus just has all the... I don't know why, but they don't understand and they're afraid to ask. Okay, now what happens? Verse 33. Jesus is making his way south now, slowly, and he's going down to Jerusalem. He's probably been with the disciples somewhere between two and two and a half years teaching them. They come to Capernaum, and when he is in the house, he asked them about the little travel that they had down to Capernaum from Galilee. And he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? And you have to love Jesus' questions because his questions are intentionally designed not so that he can get information on things he's missing out on. He's asking questions in order to prod at the heart, to draw people out. And Mark lets us know at the end of verse 34 what it was that they were talking about. We don't know up until this point. So Jesus may have been out in front. They're sort of behind, jibber-jabbering with each other. What was it that they were talking about as they walked down these dusty roads? It says that they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, can you imagine that? Just being sort of part of that crowd and hearing everything that's happening and hearing this discussion, this argument that ramps up. And I... This is just kind of speculation, but I wonder how it went. Maybe something like this. Someone says, yeah, Peter, you got a loud mouth. I think you'd be Jesus's right-hand man in the kingdom. The son of man is coming. You heard what he said earlier, and you sure know how to use your chops. And another one laughs and says, yeah, right, Peter. Just back in chapter eight, Jesus rebuked you and said, get behind me, Satan. There's no way that you can be the VP in Jesus's kingdom. I think it's gonna be John. John's kind of smooth, he loves people. But then James, his brother, speaks up and says, nah, John's too soft. He can't throw a punch when he needs to. He holds it back sometimes. I don't think it's gonna be him. I think it could be Thomas, because he's always thinking about things. 
and somebody comes up and says, it can't be Thomas. Thomas isn't that great. He questions too much and he can't follow orders right away. All right, so maybe that's how it happened. Maybe they had, they had the audacity to actually point at themselves and say, well, I think I'm going to be the greatest. Whatever it was, Jesus knows that they were having this conversation and they were concerned about who was going to be the greatest in this kingdom. We might say, that's never me. And I think to one degree, we're right in the sense that we don't let those arguments come out loud. We have those arguments raging in our hearts, though, at times. You say, what do you mean? Well, when was the last time you thought of yourself as being better or greater than someone else and thinking, they don't deserve what I have? When was the last time you looked down, at your, no down your nose at someone and just thought, uh, they are inferior to me? What Jesus is doing is he is seeing their drive and their pursuit of wanting to be great and he calls them over, knowing that they have talked about this. And notice what he says here in verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, here's what we see in terms of that which characterizes a follower of Jesus. We're going to see this theme, humility. Humility... Point number one, or letter A on your outline, humility expressed by serving the insignificant. What do we mean by humility here? The word doesn't appear in this section, but the idea is all over it because you have individuals who are walking in pride, sometimes deceitful pride, and Jesus is saying, we've got to deal with this pride. There needs to be the aspect, the presence of humility here. Humility is simply just saying, I'm going to think of others above myself. And Jesus calls him over and says, hey, here is how you need to be seeing yourself. Not as those who are greatest in the kingdom, but if you want to truly see what I value and what I see as being a priority in somebody's life, somebody who is first in the way that I would see them is this, that they have to be willing to be a servant. They have to be willing to see those people whom God has put into your life and say, okay, it's not about them respecting and propping me up on a pedestal. It's about me coming into their lives and surrendering my pride and being willing to be a servant. This is what characterizes the followers of Jesus in his kingdom. Those who are willing to say, it's not about me. Because there are going to be things that people say that offend me. There are going to be opportunities that I'm not asked to step into and fulfill. Roles that I might miss out on. It's not about that. What is it about? It's about stooping low and willing to come alongside the people of Jesus and serve them. Jesus says, 
If anyone be, would be first, he must be last of all. And what does that phrase, last of all, how is it expressed? By being a servant of all. This is what will characterize kingdom people. We see this in the life of Jesus. John 13, Jesus brings his disciples to that last supper. He gathers them in an upper room. Here is the leader. Here is the son of man. And you remember that he takes a basin of water with his 12 disciples, takes a towel around his waist, and goes around one by one by one, each individual having their feet sprinkled with that water, Jesus' hands on their dirty feet, and taking that towel and wiping their feet. And each one could see with his eyes and feel with his senses, Jesus is serving. And Jesus turns around and says, you've seen what I've done. I've given you an example. Now go and do likewise. In all of this, while Jesus was going to the cross, he could have bent his ear to the disciples and said, tell me how great you think I am. Prop me up. Make much of me as an individual. And we know that Jesus is propped up. We know that he's the Savior. But he was showing by example that those who are going to follow him must be willing to serve. This is the whole heart of Jesus. That's why when we get to chapter 10, and he talks about himself being the son of man. Verse 45, he'll say, For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul picks up on this and talks about serving. Those who have come into Christ's kingdom are freed from being in pursuit of continually propping themselves up for self-significance. And he says, okay, once you've received the gospel, you see your leader, you see the servant, and now you see that you have been set free from that pursuit of self-significance. So what does he say in Galatians 5.13? For you were called to freedom, brothers. You're called to freedom from your former life. It's not about you. That's what this freedom is. It's not about self-significance. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Use your salvation in Christ now as a means of seeing that what's important to the world is flipped upside down, and what's important in Jesus' kingdom is this aspect of serving. Now, what does this service look like? Verses 36 and 37. He's got the disciples there. And he drops this bomb. You need to be a servant of all. Stop arguing about who would be greatest. Verse 36, and he takes a child and puts him in the midst of them. And taking his child, he goes on to speak to them. Now, let's talk about the child for just a second. Children were the least significant of people in this culture. Why were they so insignificant? They were not able to help much around the farm. They couldn't make changes in society. They constantly needed help. They had no social status. And because of all of these things, they are seen as very insignificant. They had the least amount of return on your investment. And here's Jesus' point. Let's take the most insignificant person that our society looks at, children. He brings them right into the middle of the twelve. And he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And here's Jesus' point. A Christ follower sees those who, humanly speaking, are lowly and insignificant. And that Christ follower says, I don't have an option. I'm not in it to get something in return. I'm not in it to hear the accolades or to hear the nice things that they might have to say about me. That's not why I'm doing this. I am here to love this person whom God has put into my life, to serve him or her. And in doing so, Jesus says, that's my heart. And when you do that, you get me. You understand me. You've received me. You understand and receive me. You've received the Father. So this is just flip-flopping, upending everything in our world where people are longing for greatness and significance and for others to prop them up thinking they need a life to be measured by great accomplishments, by the world adoring them. And Jesus takes the table of cultural significance and wipes it clean, just like, let's clear the slate because you guys were arguing about something that really is upended, like it is messed up. We need to talk about serving. This is what characterizes followers of Jesus. Those who follow Christ are great when they serve others, when they look at others and humbly help them, when they serve people who are maybe insignificant on the cultural totem pole. What characterizes a Christian? Humility expressed in serving those who have needs. So that's the first aspect or characteristic of a Christ follower. There's a second characteristic, and that is humility expressed in seeing the whole body of Christ. So John, he doesn't quite have this humility aspect, and there's still this aspect of greatness that he's pursuing from a worldly view. So in verse 38, John says to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, there seems like there's something that is missing in John's perspective now. He sees himself as being part of this greatness, and his initial reaction is, we see other people out here doing things in your name, but they're not with us. They're not following us, and I think John is missing a point here. It's not about following us. It's about following Jesus, and so Jesus turns to them and says this, if they're not against us, they're for us. I know I've told some of you recently, but I was reading one of David McCullough's books. He just passed away this last week. He's a historian. And he wrote that book, 1776. Um, Talks about the American Revolution and what was going on with the colonies. And what struck me as I read that book was that George Washington had several generals underneath him. And we tend to prop up all of these generals as being noble and of high character. But as you read the story, what is going on with these generals is there's all kinds of infighting that's taking place. They all want a legacy. They all want a slice of the pie. They all want to be propped up. So many of them are resentful towards one another. They're aiming for the same thing in one sense. They want want freedom, but in their pursuit of freedom, they want to use that as an avenue for their own greatness along the way. 
And it caused Washington a ton of heartache, a ton of misery as he watches this kind of squabbling happening on the inside. And Washington is saying the most important thing is this revolution, this war that goes forward. His goal was for the military to work together and for freedom to be attained. And in the meantime, they're pointing fingers at each other saying, he's not doing it my way. No, he's not doing it my way. He needs to be rebuked. He needs to be decommissioned. And Washington is saying, like, just scrap all of that and recognize that you're together in this cause. And so Jesus says to John about somebody who's doing something well, he says, do not stop the one who's doing this for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. So he does the mighty work, he's not gonna speak evil of me. He goes on to say, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his eternal reward. What's the connection with verse 41 and what Jesus is saying? It seems like he's talking about working together. Here's this guy that's casting out demons. Here's what Jesus is saying in verse 41. Casting out demons, big and mighty work, but I want you to know, let's go the full spectrum. Anybody who comes along and delivers a cup of water to those who belong to Christ will by, by no means lose their reward. They're great as well. So you've got this spectrum of acts that are taking place on behalf of Jesus or in Jesus' name. But the big picture is this, that God wants his followers to look side to side and recognize if that Christian is for Christ, we're together. There's a sense of togetherness. And the point is that humility sees the bigger picture. Humility sees the body of Christ. So let me just ask you some questions. Maybe sort of narrowly speaking. Do you ever get envious of others in the body of Christ because of what they're able to do? Do you ever get sort of resentful and say, man, I... They, they do that so well that I wish they would actually fail. Does it bother you when others succeed sometimes? Okay, it does, all right? You can all raise your hands. There's that jealousy or envy that takes place in us sometimes. And Jesus is saying, look at each other with humility. We're for the same cause. What about churches? I mean, because here we are gathered and there's other gospel preaching churches. How, how do we look at this through a sort of ecclesiological, through a, a church lens here? I was thinking about this last week. The pastors of our church want to be as doctrinally precise as possible. We'll land with biblical conclusions. As a church, that means that our desire for doctrinal precision is going to, at some point, disagree with another church's precision. There's fundamental differences between churches. But I hope that we have the humility to understand that Christ is being proclaimed and people are being saved and built up in other churches who preach the same gospel who are for Christ. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to see God in our eyes that are dimly able to see now. We'll see more clearly then. So we can look at other churches and we might even disagree with them. And I would say, if they're not for Christ, then we're not for that church. 
But if they're for Christ and the gospel, it's like Jesus said, let them go on and be encouraged that other things are happening in the community. What about the disagreement over this issue? Well, that's going to happen. We can go with Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for this defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So people won't always be together all the time on the same things. I've got two brothers that are pastors and a dad that's a pastor. Do you think we're together on everything? I mean, you can imagine some of our conversations. I've got one brother that is, how should I say it? Um, He's got some charismatic swag to him. And he knows that we could use some charismatic swag to us. I mean, here we are. And we get together and we can talk about those things. Do we agree on every doctrinal point? No, but we can say, man, Christ is being preached in Philadelphia this morning. And a brother down in Louisville who's pastoring there. And my dad is preaching on the other side of the river in Wisconsin this morning. Like, praise God that those are happening. In our community, there are churches that might not dot each I, cross each T, have the same exact doctrinal precision or conclusions, I might say, but praise God when the gospel goes forward. So humility sees the body of Christ. Third, humility is expressed in severing sin. This is 42 in following. Look what he says here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, millstone, you remember though, those are big stones that were used for grinding the grain and breaking it down. Oftentimes there was a hole in the middle of this round stone. A pole was strung out from it or attached to it. A donkey or an animal would be attached to that pole because it was heavy. And they'd walk around this circle and that that millstone would walk or, or roll around on top of that grain over and over again, break it down. And Jesus looks at it and says, hey, if you've got sin issues in your life, the kind of sin issues that would cause others to sin, it would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and you thrown out in the sea than to cause others to sin. How would that happen? It would happen by selfishness. It happened by personal pride, not humility. So in verses 43 and following, Jesus starts talking about how do you deal with sin? How do you deal with sin in your life? Notice what he says in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. By the way, just a little rabbit trail right here. You know I read verse 43. Notice how it skips to verse 45. There's no 44. We'll get to that at some point in our study of Mark. Why there's no 44, there's no 46. We'll talk about the end of the Gospel of Mark. We'll come back to that some other time. But for those of you who are looking, I just want you to see that. All right, back to the main point. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, 
cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. All right, so you read this language and it's very drastic. And Jesus is saying, no, this has to do with yourself. Don't lose the push that Jesus is talking about. Here's the son of man. Here are those who follow him. You have to have sin that is dealt with. What keeps you from dealing with sin? Personal pride. And so what Jesus is saying here is you better have a humbled view of yourself and start dealing with sin. Now, if a spot of cancer is seen on my body or your body, you take it seriously. You go to the measures that are needed and even the pain that is needed in order to get that spot of cancer dealt with. Now Jesus says, look at your sin the same way. And he's not speaking in literal terms or else we would be like sliced down to nothing. What he's talking about is he's using hyperbole to drive his message home. You have to get serious about cutting off sin sources in your life. If not, you're saying, I want life my way. And you're not walking in the humility of following the servant like king. You're all about what others will do for you. You're all about what you can get for yourself. There's only one son of man, and even the son of man walks in humility. So, looking at sin, looking at your eyes, if your sin is that you are constantly envious of materialism and people, it's probably because you have put those things in front of your eyes and you're the one who flips through pages or flips through sites and says, I need to have that, I want that. How do you get serious about that? You say, I gotta sever that off. I don't need to be in front of those screens. I don't need to be in front of those magazines. I can stop the subscription. I've got an issue with envy where I'm not satisfied in Christ. I'm only going to be satisfied in those things. Jesus says, take serious action, cut that off. If your sin is that you're involved in a sinful relationship, you need to be serious about severing yourself from that relationship. If your sin is that you find yourself going places that cause you to sin, maybe you go to a certain gas station on the way home or certain stores that are a pathway for you to sin, you need to sever all of that off. Take serious actions to cut sin off. So all of us have a struggle with sin. And I would just encourage you to think about it this week. Instead of just letting that sin ride shotgun in the car all week with you in life, have you done something? Have you brought out the sword? Have you brought out the knife to just cut that thing off? You think about it. If a husband is flirting around with another woman, why does he do that? He's saying, I want something. A woman walks into his life, starts luring him. He's got two options. One is... He can say, okay, I'm going to run with this. Or he can humble himself and say, it's not about me. I'm not here for what I want. I'm here for my wife. And I'm going to follow the king because the king has given me this wife. And so I need to sever that off. I, I shouldn't go down that road. Somebody's like, I just want to get home and feel good about myself. And the way I do that is by just tipping the whole bottle over. And then I can just like go numb. 
And the Bible clearly talks, don't get drunk with wine, okay? So you need to sever that off. Go and talk to somebody and say, hey, I want accountability. I typically drive by that store. I get a few bottles. I make my way home. And by midnight, I'm gone. Jesus says, no, cut that off. Christ's follower walks in humility by cutting off sin. And you say, well, what if I don't want to? The alternative mentioned three times is hell. The pattern of Christ followers is it's not about me. If it's about me, I'm on the fast track to hell. If it's about the king, I'm cutting those things off. I'm confessing sin. Last here, humility is expressed by being salt with one another. So verses 49 and 50, for everyone will be salted with fire. It's a hard statement. I don't really understand it enough to go into it this morning, so I'm just going to move over it. We're going to get the bigger context. Salt is good. Salt was a preservative. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Okay, so here's this picture. Here's what salt is. What's the conclusion? Have salt in yourselves And be a preserver, but be a preserver of what? What does it say here? Be a preserver of peace with one another. That's what humility looks like. Humility pursues peace. Humility is expressed by being salt with one another. So, we come to the end of this passage. Starts with the Son of Man. The great Son of Man The son of man who's going to have a kingdom that is global in nature. And even right now, I think, what an encouragement. The gospel is going forward. People are being saved. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to hear the gospel. This kingdom is without borders. It's going around the world. Jesus is going to be the eternal king, and it will be fully fulfilled in the eternal age. It will be awesome. And he comes and he says, now, here's humility. I'm laying down my life for you. I'm going to the cross. Are you going to follow me? Okay, if you're going to follow me, here's what's going to characterize you, humility. So it's like this morning, we come to this point in the road. And we come to it every day of our lives. This point in the road is, is it going to be about me? Am I going to go through this week again saying it has to be about me? Or I'm going to say, okay, Jesus, I see your greatness and I see your example. I'm holding on to the back of you. And this week, I see in your word, I see in your word that, man, I need to be humble and serve. I need to be humble and see the body of Christ. I need to be humble and cut sin off. I need to be humble and and pursue peace with one another. Those who are Christ's people say, man, I can be freed from pride? And I don't have to play the rat race? I can walk in the path of Jesus and empty myself of those pursuits and be filled up with him and walk in the freedom of serving others? serving the insignificant, seeing the body of Christ, severing sin, pursuing peace with one another? Yes. Not because this is just some Johnny-come-lately good idea, but it's because we believe in who Jesus is, and we follow the Son of Man to the end. Let's pray.
just with your heads bowed, can you talk to the Lord in the quietness of your heart? Perhaps thanking God for a glorious Savior who went to the cross for your pride, my pride, and offers his life of perfect obedience as a gift to you. And then maybe there's, there's an area where God is encouraging you to walk in humility. You see it. You see it more clearly. And you say, yes, yes, thank you, Lord. I don't have to have this internal battle of pride. I want to lay my life down in obedience to Jesus and walk in humility. Just talk to the Lord in the quietness of your heart about those issues, and I'll come back and pray. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for our church family together, and I pray that you would encourage us with the, the peacefulness of humility with one another and the security of following you. And I just, I ask that you would cultivate that in our hearts and our lives on a deep level this week more and more. Uh, please let us see the freedom of walking away from sin and living in the structure and beauty and order of your world in the sense of living according to your word. How much better it is rather than banging our heads up against the desire for our own significance and constantly falling short and craving for it more and more again. Whatever you call us to, Lord, I pray that we would have a Christ-like humility a love for one another, eyes for one another, seeing one another, being encouraged. So please build us up this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.